Well, thank you for having me here with you this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start with a, a brief apology. If you see me adjusting my glasses on a regular basis, it's as much a nervous habit as it is the fact that I've just started wearing uh, bifocals or needing, not bifocals, uh, reading glasses. And these happen to be bifocal reading glasses, so I'm going to try it out for the first time, actually having them on and keeping them on. Um, so if you just see me fidgeting with them, you can, you can realize that it's not, uh, it's not me usually. But um, it's, the, it's the age. I'm getting old. It is a matter of fact. Also, I've also noticed I have a little, little bit of a rasp in my voice, so I'll have to stop and get some water every so often. But I suppose you're used to that because it does get dry up here when you're speaking, it turns out. So um, how many of you are, are familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet? Right? Most, most everybody knows the story of Romeo and Juliet, two lovers who who are not allowed to, to be together because of their last names. Their last names keep them apart. Um, uh, Juliet Capulet and, and, and Romeo Montague, uh, their families have been feuding for years and years and years, and they don't want their bloodlines crossed. And so they're stuck. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's at that point that uh, Juliet says or asks a, a very famous question about uh, about what it means to have a name. She says, what's in a name? It's a good question. What is in a name? Needless to say, my name is not the most common name in the world, right? Darden, like Darden Prairie, uh, is, uh, is just not something you hear on a regular basis. When, uh, during the O.J. Simpson trial way back when, uh, most of you probably remember that, um, there was a, uh, one of the prosecutors was named Christopher Darden. And I think that was about the time that social media was getting started, and I was on some social media site, and my name on the social media site was Darden C. And everybody thought that I was this huge fanatic of the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm like, no, seriously, it's my name. And they're like, no, nobody has that name. Yeah, well, we do. It's been around for centuries, believe it or not, but it's still rare enough that I have to repeat it at least twice when introducing myself to someone uh, for the very first time. And even then, it's often received with a little bit of a look of, hmm, really? What, 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 what did you say exactly? As if I'm speaking a foreign language or, or not speaking clearly enough, which my mother accused me of on occasion, I, I admit. But it's only after explaining that it's garden with a, with, a, with a D at the beginning that people begin to go, oh, I understand why. They, they say things like, well, that's quite unusual, to which I reply, well, my parents were unusual people. That is true. According to my mom, it's not really her fault, although she doesn't call it her fault. She doesn't, she doesn't say, well, it's a fault of anyone. She likes my name. But according to my mom, it was my dad's idea to name me Darden. Apparently, he came up with the name while reading a book about the campaign of the Dardanelles in World War II. Many of you probably don't know what the Dardanelles are. The Dardanelles are an narrow strait in northwest Turkey. They connect the Aegean Sea and the Sea of Marmara. They are named after the ancient land of Dardania, which sat on the southernmost shore of the strait. And in turn, that land is named after Dardanus, the mythical son of Zeus and Electra. See, there's some history there. It's, it is kind of interesting. At least to me, it sounds interesting. It's a better story than, I don't know, my parents were weird. Uh, which, before I knew the history of the name, that's what I often said. It is kind of interesting, but it doesn't tell you anything about me. You've all heard the history of my name now. You, you know where it came from, but if someone asked you, well, tell me about this Darden Kaler guy, you go, well, he preached one Sunday, and his name 
has something to do with, with, with Zeus and Electra. I don't know. Something weird. But you don't know much about me beyond that. And that doesn't tell you very much. That's quite common in our culture, right? I mean, names are not things that we, we think about other than how they sound. A lot of people name, uh, name their children. Um, I, I did it. I chose names that, that, that were based a lot on sound. They, they, they named their children based on, on sound because the fact is, is that the meaning of names are not very significant to us in our culture. Yes, we all know people who are named after a significant relative, right? We, we know someone who's got their grandfather's name or their grandmother's name or a great aunt's name or something along those lines. That's significant. We probably know people who are named after uh, the place where they were born. Um, and that has some level of significance, but at least because at least tells you something about who that person is. For the most part, we do choose names that are simply that simply sound good. They have a ring to them because the meaning is not so important to us. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not making any criticism of that. I'm just saying it, it, it's different than the way a lot of cultures do things. The fact is, a lot of cultures do still name their, choose names for their children uh, based on things that are, that are meaningful to them. And it sort of dictates or it sort of tells you something about the child or at least tells you something about the family. In biblical times, this was a really common practice. In fact, I, I can't really think of a person in the Bible that doesn't have a name that has some deep meaning to it. People gave their children names with significance because names were significant. They meant something, and, and, and they played a big role in who those people were. For example, sometimes names that are recorded in the Bible uh, tell us an aspect about the, of, the, of the person's birth. For example, Exodus 2.10 tells us that, that Moses, which means to draw out, was given that name because his mother drew him out of a river. Sometimes biblical names express a parent's reaction to a child's birth. For example, Genesis 21.6, Sarah names her son Isaac, which means laughter, because she laughs when she hears God say that she is going to have a child in her old age. Sometimes biblical names communicated something about the person or something about what God was doing through that person. For example, Isaiah named his son, his first son, Sher Jashab, I think is the way it's pronounced, and that means a remnant shall return. He was, he was uh, uh, prophesying with his son's name about what God was going to do with his people. There's huge significance to that. Finally, biblical names often express a relationship with God. For example, names ending with E-L, like Samuel. Uh, they, they mean of God or with God. Those are important because it tells about the person's relationship with God. All that's to say that, that names were extremely important back then. So important that people, people thought about them and, and, and fretted over them and wondered, what, what are we going to call our child? What will we name them? They purposefully chose names with important meanings. It was a practice that they had received from God, right? God did the same sort of thing throughout Scripture. We see it a number of times. Uh, one example is... Uh, uh, Genesis 32, 28, the, uh, he, he renames his servant Jacob, which means supplanter or, or grabs by the heel. Uh, and he names him Israel, which means wrestles with God. Likewise, in today's passage, he chooses a name for his own son. A name that we, we don't often connect, at least not readily. The first thing we think about is when we think about our Savior, we think about Jesus. We might think about Christ, the title. 
but Emmanuel. He chooses the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the background of this passage looks like this. Ahaz was the 11th king of Judah. His 16-year reign was marked by apostasy, idolatry, wickedness, and a lack of trust in God. His name, which, which means to seize or grasp, applies to any time um, someone grabs at something and connects themselves, unites themselves to it in such a way that they, that, that they're, they are one. They're united. You Think of it in marriage. In that way. It's exactly what Ahaz was doing. He didn't trust God. That was probably the most, that was probably his biggest sin. He, he did not trust God, and Ahaz aligned himself with the wicked king of Assyria to prevent being overthrown, to protect his own reign. He connected God's people, God's holy and chosen people, to a polar opposite to the evil and wicked people of Assyria, so that God's people were now thus dependent on their enemies. So God's prophet, Isaiah, which means salvation from the Lord or salvation in the Lord, he challenges this wayward king. God uses him to challenge Ahaz in his, in his position, in his alignment with Assyria. And he reminds him that he doesn't need anything else in his life. He doesn't need to rely on anything else for, for, uh, for protection or for care or for salvation because his salvation is found in God alone. That's it. To prove his point, Isaiah tells the king to ask for a sign. He says, ask for anything you want. As high as the heavens, as low as the sea. Ask for anything so that God can show himself to you and prove, prove that you need nothing else. But Ahaz refuses. So Isaiah retorts, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, um, it's bad enough. It's bad enough that you, that you, that you, Test my patience. Now you're going to test God's patience? Isaiah goes on saying, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The entire passage is great. It's, it, we, we could spend hours just unpacking all the things that, that are taking place in this passage, but today we're going to focus on just a small, small part of it. Actually, we're going to focus on one word in verse 14. We're going to focus on Emmanuel, the name, the name Emmanuel. We, we do that because, in a sense, what we get from this name is everything we need to know. The name sort of says it all. Just as we learn a lot about uh, what was going on in today's passage from the names of the characters, you know, Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. He says to Ahaz, the Lord is your salvation. Just as we get a lot from the names of the characters in this passage, we can also learn a lot about God's plan for his people, about what he's going to do in us and through us, through the name that he gives our Savior. One scholar exclaimed, all the beauty, mystery, and majesty of Christmas gathers around this name, Emmanuel. All the beauty, majesty, and mystery of Christmas gathers around this name, Emmanuel. 
As Isaiah's contemporaries would have understood, the name Emmanuel means God with us. And and it reveals much about his plan for our lives. In fact, it tells us everything about his plan for our lives. Not, Not only does it tell us who he was, but it also tells us what he did and why he did it. His name truly says it all, as, as Matthew explains in the first chapter of his gospel account. Verse 23 in Matthew 1, he tells us that Isaiah's prophecy is, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And he came to save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, right? Literally, Jesus is Greek for Joshua. It means God is salvation. He is our Savior. God sent the angel Gabriel to tell Joseph and Mary what to name their son. He, he chose a name that communicated something about who Jesus would be. The most important thing about who Jesus would be and what he was going to do and why he was going to do it. And we see these three elements come out again in the name Emmanuel. His name reveals his identity. Uh, throughout history, surnames have uh, been connected in part to a person's identity, Right? Uh, You take a name like uh, Jackson, Peterson, Thompson. They they communicate one's lineage. Someone with the last name of Jackson was the son of Jack. Someone with the name of Thompson was the son of Tom. You you get the idea, right? Emmanuel does the same sort of thing with Jesus. Now, in many ways, it's it's easy for people in our culture particularly, uh, and maybe around the world, to to recognize uh, or affirm the humanity of Jesus Christ. I've never met anyone who claimed that Jesus did not exist as a historical figure. He was real. He was a historical figure. Um, He lived, he breathed just as we do. The difference is, of course, that Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was not just a man. He was the God-man. Specifically, God with us. He was our Emmanuel. This is what uh, theologians and Bible scholars call the doctrine of incarnation. God took on human flesh. He became one of us, and yet he did so by living perfectly, by obeying God's law perfectly, because we couldn't. Back in 2009, I was uh, in my car. I was on the way to an appointment. I was stuck in traffic on 270. I suspect all of you have had that experience before. And um, I was listening to the Diane Reams show, uh, Talk of the Nation, and the author, Salman Rushdie, was on the radio. And they got on to the topic of religion, which is a, is a big topic for Salman Rushdie. And she asked him how we could ever know for sure that God existed. And this was Rushdie's reply. You can look it up. I kid you not. You can hear the thing. This is, this is, this is it. He says, I guess he would have to show up. And I'm sitting in traffic, and I smack myself on the head, and I'm going, come on! I I confess, sometimes I get a little animated when I'm listening to things, and people say foolish things on the radio or on TV. I I sometimes will will talk out loud to the inanimate object that I'm listening to. And I'm, I'm yelling at the radio. I'm going, come on, he did show up! What more can he say than to you he has said? How could he possibly do anything more? What more do you need to prove that God exists? You goof. I I did say that. I'm sorry. It was just in my notes. It it, it just, it's crazy. It seemed crazy to me. He took on our frailties, 
of humanity. He suffered the same sorrows and the same pain. Uh, He showed up and he went through everything that we go through, and yet he remained perfectly holy, perfectly holy. Not a stain on him, because he was God. He was God with us. One of the ways the Bible confirms this truth is by showing us how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies like the one in today's passage. Um, We know this passage is about Jesus because he was the one born of a virgin, as was prophesied in verse 12. In other places, Isaiah prophesies that the promised one will be a Nazarene. He will be a minister in Galilee. He will be oppressed and brokenhearted. The prophet Micah adds to this that that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem. The prophet Hosea adds to this that he would spend time in Egypt. All these prophecies and and many, many others are fulfilled by Jesus. And, And that's truly, truly amazing. Think about that for a second. Think about how amazing that is. According to the book Science Speaks, the mathematical probability of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies in the Old Testament is one in one in 1.7 million. Let me try that again. One in 1.7 sextillion, or 17 followed by seven, 17 zeros. Is that right? 17 followed by 17 zeros. Is that right? I'm thinking in my head. Is that right? I don't know. Um, the author argues that it would be like the probability of a blind person finding a Susan B. Anthony dollar in a stack of quarters two feet high that covered the entire state of Texas. Have you ever tried to distinguish between a, a, a Susan B. Anthony dollar and a quarter um, just by feel? It, when when the, the Treasury decided they were going to make those, those Susan B. Anthony dollars, it infuriated, infuriated people uh, as soon as they saw them because they were the exact same size. You reach into your pocket, you pull one out, you... you, you Put, put it in the machine to get, you know, to get a soda, and you realize you spent a dollar more than you needed to. Because the machine's like, hey, look, <laughs> four extra quarters or three extra quarters, that's great. What a wonderful thing. The probability of a blind person finding a Susan B. Anthony dollar in a stack of quarters the size of the state of Texas That's the probability of Jesus being, or or, or of one person fulfilling all these prophecies. And yet Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, did just that. His name says so much about who he is. It tells us who he was. It tells us what he did. It reveals his presence in this world, right? Um, Jesus isn't just a man. We can agree with the people who don't believe or have faith in Christ, uh, at least on the historical aspect, that he existed. We would probably all agree on that. But Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God. He was Emmanuel. He was the, co- the God who came to be with us on earth. The New City Catechism explains it like this. It said, Jesus had to become a man so that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with us in our weakness. Remember the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet is without sin. To save us, to pay the penalty for our sin. That's why Jesus came. 
He had to become one of us in order for that to happen. He couldn't very well sympathize with us, right, if he didn't know what we went through. He couldn't perfectly obey God's law under the same conditions that, we, that we're supposed to obey God's law. He couldn't take the consequences of our sin unless he came here, unless he was present in our lives, in our midst, unless he experienced every temptation, every trial, every suffering, every, all suffering and every pain in life the same way that we do. He couldn't do those things unless he was here. That's why he is Emmanuel. The Bible repeatedly tells us in passages like John 3.16 and uh, John 15.16 that Jesus did these things because of his great love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And greater love has no man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. First Peter Chapter 3.18, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirits. Jesus loved us so much, so much, that he stepped down from, from his throne and came to be one of us, taking on flesh, taking on a likeness of man. His presence, then, demonstrates his priority in his life, right? It demonstrates what was important to him. Just as we often use our time, or the way we use our time, indicates our priorities in our lives, um, so too it is with Jesus. That Jesus, the way he used his time, the way he spent his life, indicates the priorities that he had. Just think about that for a second. Um, if I told you that I spend a lot of time on my hair every morning to make sure it looks right, you'd probably laugh because you'd go, well, you don't have any hair. And I would say, well, yes, but you don't know that I don't have hair by, maybe it's by choice, right? What if I did have hair? Humor me for a second. It's not by choice. If I, if I could grow my hair a little longer and wavy, that'd be great. I'd love to. But let's pretend, humor me, go along with my fantasy for just a minute. Pretend that I have nice hair. And if I say to you, hey, I spend about an hour getting my hair ready every day. It's important to me. You'd go, that's a priority. The way he looks, what he, what he looks like when he goes out in public, apparently, specifically his hair, uh, that's important to him. He wants people to notice his hair. Same is true for Jesus. What he did, how he spent his time, the way he used his time, they, they, they demonstrate his priorities. His priorities to glorify God by saving for himself a people from their sin. And this truth is reflected in the name Emmanuel. His name reveals his purpose and his priority. Jesus came to save sinners, to seek and save the lost, as he said to Zacchaeus late in Luke. The name Emmanuel tells us that the God who became or came to be with us did so not just for his own glory, but for our good so that we can be reconciled with God. We are Christ's priority, his people. He came for us. For the Christian, then, that means that we can experience his presence here in this life today. He's, he's not some celestial Santa Claus. We have this thing in our culture where, where people look at, at, at Jesus and they say, he, they wouldn't say it in these words, but they see him as a, as a genie of sorts. 
I don't want to go to him or I don't need to go to him when things are going well. I don't need to, to spend time with him. I don't need to really learn more about him or worship him or do any of those things. But gosh, if things are going bad, I'll just rub the lamp a little bit by going to worship and maybe opening my Bible and finding a couple of verses to pray. We see him as a celestial Santa Claus that gives us gifts at times. But he's nothing like that. Jesus isn't distant. Remember the song, What If God Was One of Us? Another one of those moments where I, every time it's on the radio, just, it just annoys me. He's not distant. He was one of us. He walked on earth. He breathed like us. He suffered the same things that we suffer. He experienced the same joys that we experience. He knows the depth of sin in the world. He understands the pain that we experience. He knows the sadness we feel when a loved one dies, the hurt that stems from a relationship that's falling apart, uh, the disappointment of hopes and dreams that were not realized. He, he understands all those things. He experienced them really. Not just, not just mystically or magically somehow did he understand because he created those emotions, but he, he went through them and felt Everything that we feel. He understands all those things because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he came to redeem us out of all those fears and sorrows and struggles and pains into a life in his presence that's dominated by, by his peace and by his joy. That's where the idea of, of uh, a peace that passes understanding, it's a peace that other people go, how can they be so at peace when their life is so tumultuous. That's what Christ does. His presence brings us that peace. When I was a kid, um, and, and it would thunder and lightning outside, I, I grew up in Iowa, and, and uh, it seems like back then the thunderstorms were so much bigger. Maybe it's just that I'm older and you know, I'm losing my hearing or whatever, I don't know. But when I was a kid, they just seemed so much more massive. It was like the world was coming down. You remember those thunderclaps that would rattle your house and you have those old wooden windows that would just shake and the glass would, would almost appear like it was going to break. They scared me to death. And every time that would happen, I would run to my parents' room, if it happened in the middle of the night. I'd run to, the room, run to their room and I, and I would jump in between them and, and they would take me under the covers and wrap their arms around me and I went right back to sleep. Why? Because they were there and everything was fine. That's the presence of Christ in our lives. That's, that's the peace that it's supposed to bring us. Not because everything is going to go well, not because everything is going to be perfect, but because he is Emmanuel. He has experienced it all, and he came to save us from all of this. That is your faith today. Then rest and rejoice in knowing that Emmanuel is here right now, working through his Holy Spirit, working in your life, working through this church, to bring about the healing that he's promised so that we can experience that level of peace in our lives. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we do confess that it is not always easy to find peace in this world. Not just amongst the conflict that is always raging around us, always raging in this world, but, but even in our own hearts, Lord, it is often hard to find peace 
when we wrestle with so many things that, that seem, to be going, seem to be going wrong, so many things that are out of our control. And yet, Lord, the promise that you make to us is not that you'll just save us, but that you've been here. You know what we need better than we know what we need. You're the king of all creation and a man who has experienced everything that we've experienced. You love us despite our sin and you come to bring us peace. Lord God, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for sending your son to become one of us, to live as us, and to save us from our sin. We pray that even now as our hearts mull over the words that we've heard, think about what it means for your son to be Emmanuel. We pray that even now as we think about those things that you would change us. Continue to shape us and mold us into his image. Continue, continue to draw us closer to you. And continue to help us celebrate the joy that comes from knowing that your son came for us. Thank you for this time and for this place and for each heart here. We pray that you would continue to be with us now as we worship. In Christ's precious and holy name, amen. During this Advent season,